Listen, when I'm away, I give you some really good substitutes, don't I? I just have to get back to town and be sure I still have my job after all the preaching and teaching that's been going on around here. It's good to see you. Uh, I was, as you know, uh, away in Cambodia and China. Our church has uh, partnerships in Cambodia and China. And uh, it's just wonderful to see how the Lord's working. Sometimes, you know, we get a little discouraged. Our own friends aren't coming to Jesus Christ the way we want them to, and sometimes even our own family. And it's good to get out every once in a while, see the Lord is work at work. Maybe not uh, as uh, strongly right in our own neighborhood, but He is around the world. Uh, you know, the Pol Pot regime really destroyed Cambodia back in the late 70s, from 75 to 79, just wiping out about a third of the population, destroying its infrastructure, uh, assassinating all of its leaders, all of its educated people, and just left basically a young, very poor country behind. And uh, in 1979, I believe we had about a thousand Christians in Cambodia. And over the years now, we have, uh, as of last year, someone estimated about 250,000 Christians in that uh, very Buddhist land. So it's great to see the Lord at work. The Cambodians are open to the gospel. And uh, many, many churches and cell groups are being planted all over uh, the countryside, and we're really grateful for that. And then in China, as you know, for the past 50 years, wonderful things have been happening there as the church is exploding in its size uh, and becoming very influential. I uh, met with one of the men that we're partnering with there, a uh, Chinese man. I uh, became a Christian back in the 80s, and then he led people to Christ, and God began to work in his county, which is part of a million-member city, in his county, there are 83,000 people. And, uh, and in the 90s, in, in one decade, 50,000 people in that 83,000 citizen county became Christians. Of course, the government got freaked out and uh, threw him in jail for three years, along with his wife for six months. They had a three-year-old child. He gets out, and uh, they, send a, they send a government official with him everywhere he goes. And all that did was develop the leadership, so, so it's not just himself. So there are 100,000 Christians under his leadership. And uh, one thing we did was to give him some resources to develop discipleship materials for all those people. Now he's in a 14 million citizen city, and he said it's a lot slower there and a lot harder. So over the past year, he's only led 800 people to Christ and uh, has these cell groups and churches going. And it's just wonderful to see the Lord at work in a very difficult place. I also was impressed with this, that uh, in the midst of our financial crisis, the financial crisis around the world is even greater. And uh, the two-thirds world is having a hard time putting food on the table. So for those of you who are involved in, in charitable giving, and I hope that's all of you, uh, and who are especially tending to the poor, this is no time to pull your sport out for them. So whatever you do with your finances, uh, let's be sure that we not pull them away from those who are in the greatest need, both here in Memphis and around the world. Because uh, whatever the crisis is, for those who are the privileged few, like most of us in the room, uh, it is a great, much greater crisis for the poor around the world. So uh, it's good to be back with you. I've been missing you. And I'm glad to be in Proverbs because we are studying a very important topic this morning. The Proverbs has an awful lot to say about friendships. And even when you do the mission of Jesus Christ, you find that Really, the mission of Christ and expanding the kingdom around the world is done through friends. In fact, that's what I was going to do, is just network with our friends and build friendships around the world because it is through those friendships that, that we do the ministry. It was the same way with Jesus. He had friends, 12 friends, 70 friends, 500 friends. And ever, uh, as you go into those semicircles uh, or into those uh, concentric circles, ever-increasing intimacy in those friendships. But Jesus does his work through friends. He says, I've called you my friends, not servants. So he's doing his work around the world through friends, and we're to do our work through friends. And I trust that no matter what your work is, your occupation, that you will be striving to do your work through friends. Uh, I think we've been given a great example with our president-elect. Here he has a you know, barnstorming primary contest you know, down to the last wire you know, uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton. And who does he have rapprochement with but Hillary Clinton. He has a really tough, bitter campaign with John McCain. Who's the visit with? John McCain. Uh, there's no reason why, even if, when you're disagreeing with someone, even in the courtroom, for those of you who are lawyers, uh, you can be disagreeing with your friends. 
And we should be doing business through friends. We should be looking for friendships wherever we can get it. As a matter of fact, you'll find that those who have been the most capable leaders have been those who know how to make friends. Uh, Reagan would be considered uh, a, an effective president. He knew how to make friends. Clinton was an effective president, knew how to make friends. Uh, you'll find uh, FDR knew how to make friends. Uh, people who make things happen are people who have friends and know how to make them. And people who live the most satisfying lives are people who have friends. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, a better part of one's life consists of his friendships. And, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to look back and say, gosh, I wish I'd made another million, you know. But uh, you will be glad that you made friends. And they'll be the ones gathered around you while you're breathing your last, your family and your friends. Friends uh, are uh, of the essence of life. They're very important. And they're very profound. Aristotle said that what is a friend? A single soul dwelling in two bodies. That's called a soulmate. Uh, and I found that a friend is a person who genuinely delights in your welfare. You know what I mean? And you don't have too many people who, who don't get jealous when good things are happening to you. It's a really good friend who honestly takes great delight when good things are happening to you. I remember some years ago, I was in the Sunday school class, and someone mentioned something about a friend being someone who's glad when, when good things happen to you. And there was a man in the class who raised his hand and said, I don't think I know anybody like that. The teacher said, you know, a friend is someone who's glad when you, when you get your Mercedes, you know, instead of being jealous. He said, I don't think I have a friend like that. Friends are rare. And what I want us to, to notice is that friends ultimately are gifts of God. Uh, we're going to look at some advice in the Proverbs, some true teaching about how we can make friends and be friends and so on. But the fact of the matter is that real friends come to you as gifts from God. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way. He said, we force no doors in friendship, but like the Christ in Revelation, we stand reverently at the door without to knock. And only if the door be open from within may we welcome in to sup with our friend and he with us. The glory of friendship is not the outstretched hand, nor the kindly smile, nor the joy of companionship. It is the spiritual inspiration that comes to one when he discovers that someone else believes in him and is willing to trust him with his friendship. My friends have come unsought. The great God gave them to me. Uh, Queen Victoria said that uh, during, and she had a very long reign, and she said that the great Prime Minister William Gladstone was a phenomenal person. She said that whenever you were in Gladstone's presence, you had the sense of being in the presence of a great man. But she said the next Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Disraeli, that when you were in his presence, he made you feel like a great person. <laughs> and uh, Disraeli was, was known for his ability to win friends and influence people. In fact, he said on one occasion, friendship is the gift of the gods and the most precious boon to man. So we value friendships. And what we're going to see is we must learn to make good friends. That's the first thing we're going to notice in our, in our study this morning. We've got to learn to make good friends. The Proverbs teach it to us and tell us that friendships are extremely important and we need to become skilled at this if we're to be obedient to the Lord. Now, the first thing in making good friends, I'd like to, I'd like to mention uh, three primary things in the Proverbs. There's a lot we can say about friendships, but let's take the Proverbs and categorize them into three categories for how we can make good friends. First of all, you've got to be intentional. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens Another, are you being intentional about your friendships? You cannot make them. They're gifts from God, but here's what you can do. You can pray for them. You can be ready for them when they show up. So that when someone cracks that door, you're ready to walk through it. When a friend comes down from heaven, you're ready to receive it. You know what you're looking for. And when, you, when you're given it, you know it's a gift from God and you receive it. The, the friend, for you receive him. So you pray for him. You're ready for him. And then when he comes, you cultivate him in the friendship. Now, 
it's wonderful to look into the scriptures and see so many examples of how this happens. Think of some of the most fabulous leaders in the scriptures, and when you do, you'll think of people who know how to make friends. Look at David. Now, some of his friends were kind of rough. You know, the, the 30 valiant men, they were not known to be gentlemen. Uh, but David had a great friendship with Jonathan, who was, of course, the son of the king. Uh, David had friends around him all the time, sometimes too many girlfriends, but he had, some, he had some strong guy friends. And you'll find that David had the ability and developed the skill to make friends. What about the Apostle Paul? Look at Paul. Everywhere he goes, he's cultivating friendships. He's always working with people. He travels with people, uh, like Barnabas. What a wonderful friend. Barnabas uh, means son of encouragement. Uh, and he had this wonderfully encouraging friend with him all the time. And of course, you know about Paul's life, how much he needed encouragement, facing troubles every day of his life. And of course, Silas. You know, Silas was a wonderful prisoner partner. You know, Silas didn't mind going to prison with his friend. Paul was getting him in trouble constantly. And Silas didn't abandon him. He stuck right with him. And, and then, of course, Paul taught Timothy how to develop friends around him. He taught Titus how to do the same. And he, Paul was constantly accompanied by strong people. Uh, if you've read uh, Billy Graham's autobiography, um, somebody got the name of it? I read it several summers ago. Huh? Yeah, just as I am. Thank you. Uh, if you've read his uh, biography, autobiography, uh, you learn many things about Dr. Graham. Of course, one is that he's a, he's a wonderful prayer, and his ministry was founded on prayer. Uh, but you'll also find this. He developed wonderful friendships, and they're old friendships. And, of course, you know, you know the guys that were with him. They're all very common names. And those, those friendships were developed early in his life, and once you have a good friend, you don't abandon them. Sometimes you're tempted to smack them across the face or shoot them, but you don't abandon your good friends. They're very, very worthwhile. And uh, Dr. Graham developed those friendships, stuck with them, and if you, if you know about them, you know they're all strong people. And those who serve on the Billy Graham board, I've always been impressed with the strength of his board. Billy Graham didn't get weak people around him. He got strong people around him, and he made good friends with them. So you'll find that people who are serious about changing the world and making a contribution are those who know how to network. And if you're going to make a difference in Memphis, you can't go do this by yourself. You have to create a network of friends so that you're, you're one among several who are leading. And you don't know when you develop the friendships whether you're going to be the leader, the key leader, or they're going to be the key leader. You're just developing friendships because you know that's the way God works is through friends. So you've got to be very intentional in developing these friends. Now, uh, let's look at the second point, which really is part of our intentionality, and that is to be selective. Benjamin Franklin said, be slow in choosing a friend and slower in changing a friend. So be slow in choosing your friends. Be selective. We see here in, the, in, these, uh, in 1226, a righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. The wicked person, he doesn't care. He'll be a companion of fools, anybody to go along with him and a common partner in crime. But a person who's a righteous man, he's cautious because he wants his deepest friendships to be with righteous people. Now, of course, we have to teach our children the same thing we're learning ourselves. And that is the difference between a soulmate and someone to whom we're seeking to have outreach. And we want our children to, be, to learn to be good, good acquaintances and good friends, if you will, with people who disagree with them on moral issues and religious issues. But then there's a, the soulmate, the partner. You know, there's a word that's used for, for Daniel and his friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were called partners. And you'll find that, that it's the same word that's used for the wife, the partner of your youth in Malachi chapter 2. So there are these soulmates with whom we connect. We, we have to develop very slowly and cautiously. You let them come into your life in layers. You know, you let, you let it work its way in. And you should be open to that, but you must also be cautious. And you can have friends at several different levels, and you want to be friendly with everybody. But to have a soulmate at that inner level, we must be very cautious about because this is going to shape your life. And so one of the keys, I think, in child rearing is helping your kids learn how to develop really healthy friendships. 
1320 says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. You can really sort of tell what a person is about by who their friends are. Some years ago, I was very interested to meet a man who had spent several years in Westminster Chapel in London when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was holding forth there in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. This man had been there in the late 50s, early 60s. And I was really curious to find out about him, about uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, uh, whom I consider to be a, you know, kind of the 20th century Puritan, a really wonderful preacher and teacher. And uh, he told me, among other things, he said at one point, after he'd been in London for a while, he decided to, to join the church. He'd been there probably a couple of years. And he said, well, I'll just go join the church. And uh, the doctor, they called him the doctor, uh, held uh, appointments on Sunday afternoons. So what you do to see the doctor uh, after the Sunday morning service and after lunch, you go back to the church and just wait in line and to see him. And so my friend Paul went and waited in line and got his chance. And he went in to see Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, how can I help you? And he said, I'd, I think I'd like to join the church. And the first question Dr. Lloyd-Jones asked him I found was very interesting. He said, I've seen you around. Uh, he said, tell me, who are your good friends? And my friend Paul said, well, I, uh, I'm probably close to this family and this family and this family. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, um, they're fine people. He said, now, if you'd like to, to join the church, just uh, sign up with the clerk right out here. And, he, and the man said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, don't you want to ask me if I'm a Christian? <laughs> And he said, uh, he said, no, just in our conversation, I can tell you're, you're a believer. Now, that wasn't the only question he asked him, but it was the first question he asked. And it's very interesting. You, you can kind of tell the direction someone's going by the people they gather around them. Here's why. Everybody basically gathers people who are going in the same direction they're going. That's the reason that if you want to develop good friendships with people who are strong, capable people. Just get your life going in the right direction and don't compromise. It's one thing I tell college students, for heaven's sakes, when you hit the campus, right off the bat, be sure you establish yourself with the people on your dorm hall. Let them know who you are and what you really care about. If you just start developing close friendships willy-nilly with the first person that pops around, you're gonna, your life is going to be flopping back and forth. You've got to establish yourself. Which means, of course, you're going to be lonely for about three months. And then God will drop down that friend who is compatible with the direction you're going. So the key to making good friends is to have your direction going in the right life, in the right direction. And then, of course, you, you will be cautious. So in order to make good friends, sometimes you have to be very lonely because you're not just choosing anybody to be your soulmate. So be selective. Stay away from a foolish man, says 14.7, Solomon, for you will not find knowledge on his lips. Many curry favor with a ruler, and everyone is the friend of a man who gives gifts. Everybody likes to be around a rich person. Wants to be friends with the influential person. But the, the wise man is the man who's making friends with someone who is going to establish a common basis for their friendship. So it must be based on the trajectory, the purpose of your life. And for heaven's sakes, be yourself. Don't, you know, if, if uh, I'm sure I don't have to tell you men this, but with our children, you know, just encourage them. Be yourself. If you're posturing or positioning yourself, trying to climb the social ladder, you'll never develop genuine friendships. Because genuine friendships are, are friends are people who accept you as you are. And if you're being something other than what you are, they're not accepting you as you are. They're accepting the image of who you are that you're creating out there. So you have to be yourself. Follow Christ, be yourself, pray and be open to these close friendships and then cultivate them when they come. Do not envy wicked men. Do not desire their company for their hearts plot violence and their lips talk about making trouble. Now you would have thought that Solomon would follow his own advice. But what happens at the end of his life? He makes friends with a whole bunch of women, doesn't he? Has a bunch of wives pagan wives who take him off base. And here's Solomon, wisest man on the face of the earth, giving us the scriptures. And he took it for granted that he didn't need to have strong friends. He blew it. 
at the end of his life. You be very careful. Don't get presumptuous just because you've been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or 40 years. You're constantly developing soulmates with people who are those who are walking with you. So first thing, be intentional. Secondly, be selective. Thirdly, be open. Open to what? First of all, advice. I know so many folks who have no deep friendships because they don't know how to take advice. How do you expect to be close to someone if they can't share with you the deepest thought that they've got and give you advice? So we must learn to, to listen. For a lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisors make victory sure. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. So often, people make big, big mistakes for one simple reason. They did not seek guidance. Or if they did, they sought it from people that they just knew would agree with them. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. Now, perhaps everyone is not capable of giving you good advice, but surely someone is. Maybe you're really smart. Maybe it's hard for someone to really give you advice because there just aren't many people who are smart as you are. But there are some people who are smart as you are. And if you're really smart, you really better find some. You better go looking for them because everybody needs advice. You need someone outside your skin looking in on your life who gives you advice. And this is one of the great benefits of friendships. Maybe your friends can't advise you in every aspect of your life. Maybe your occupation, for example, is very technical. And maybe your best friends just don't know how to advise you. But they can advise you in something. As a matter of fact, they can advise you in the most important things, which have to do with your relationship with God, which have to do with your relationship to this community, your relationship to your wife and your children. So be looking for advice from your friends. Now, it's obviously true, isn't it, that right now, Everyone is measuring Barack Obama's value by the advisors that he is picking. Isn't it true? It's a big deal right now. Who's he going to put in all these slots? And everybody's measuring the quality of this man uh, by whom he's drawing in to be his advisors. Well, guess what? Same is true with you. Same is true with you. If someone comes to you and asks for your advice on something, you would be wise to ask, first of all, what advice have you already received? What did you think about that advice? Have you followed it? Why waste your breath on someone who's not going to take advice? So you want to find out, is the person advisable? Do they listen to advice? And really, if, if we don't, we're not worthy to receive any new advice, really. And gentlemen, for those of us who are married, I hate to say it, how long does it take us to realize our wives are pretty good advisors? I have a friend who's married to Suzanne, and he said, Lord, teach me, but please don't use Suzanne. <laughs> and, you know, he was honest enough to say it. That's the only difference between him and me. He was honest enough to say it. We don't like to receive advice from our wives. It's humbling. We want to think that we're smarter than they are. It's irritating when they're right. And we don't like to take directions from them especially. But you've got to be open to advice. If you want a friendship with your wife, you're going to have to be open to her advice. You're not going to have a friendship without it. Also, we have to be open to correction. This is most difficult. But notice this. A mocker, a fool, resents correction. He will not consult the wise. He who listens to a life-giving rebuke. Look at this. Life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. So you will not have wise friends. You will not benefit from the company of these folks if you are not able to take a life-giving rebuke. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. A friend will stab you in the face and defend you to your back. Your enemies will stab you in the back and defend you before your face. Just remember that. That someone who's coming to you with a life-giving rebuke may be, not necessarily, they may just be an old cuss, but they may be a potential best friend, someone who loves you enough to tell you you have spinach between your teeth. 
uh, someone who can tell you that you've got a problem that needs to be corrected. But having said all these things, the best way to have a good friend is to be a good friend. So we must learn, secondly, to be good friends. This is the key to it. If you don't think that you have really good friends, well, ask yourself this question. If you were somebody else, would you want you as a friend? <laughs> it's a good question to ask, isn't it? Would you want you as a friend? I tell you, I've got such great friends. And it's a mystery to me because I, I look at that question and I say, no, I don't think I would. <laughs> but then we need to repent. And starting with the teacher this morning, I need to repent. And here's how the Proverbs tell us we can be good friends. I'd like for you to look at five categories. First of all, you gotta, you got to love. Be loving. What a man desires is unfailing love. He desires faithfulness. It's better to be poor than a liar. Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man, who can find? Let me mention several aspects of our love toward other people that enables us to build good friendships. And gentlemen, if we just simply have the heart of Christ, our plea with Him ought to be, Lord, make me a good friend. Help me not to focus on whether I'm drawing good friends around me and I have the you know, comfort of companionship. Help me to be a friend. And if you'll focus on that, you'll find that that's the real solution to this issue of friendships. First of all, in friendship, we must learn to listen unconditionally. Emerson says, a friend is one before whom I may think out loud. We must learn to listen. It's a huge blessing to someone if you can just ask questions of the other person. You know, Dale Carnegie said that you can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. So you turn the focus away from yourself. We are all obsessed with ourselves. Turn your focus away from yourself and listen to that other person's life. Just listen to them. It's amazing how therapeutic it is just to listen. I'm, I'm convinced that one reason that we so desperately need psychologists today is because we don't listen to each other as lay people. And so we need to go get an hour of time just to have someone carefully listen to us, to hear, listen between the lines, to ask follow-up questions, to get to know our hearts, to have us articulate what's on our hearts and minds and what our problems and our, our wounds are. We need to be each other's counselors more and more. Learn to listen. Secondly, we must accept each other unconditionally. So listening and accepting one another. Emerson said, it is one of the blessings of old friends that you can afford to be stupid with them. Do you have anybody with whom you can afford to be stupid? Do people Can people be stupid with you? Real friendship is one who offers acceptance. You'll find this in Romans 14 and 15. Paul says, accept each other. Why? Because Christ accepted you. That is a huge gift to people around you, is non-judgmentally to accept them. Whether they become a soulmate or not, you accept them. If they're a non-Christian, you accept them. If you're a Buddhist, you accept them. If they're a pagan, you accept them. If, if they're a murderer, you accept them as a human being. And it's a tremendous gift that we give to listen carefully and then to accept based on what we hear. Thirdly, in loving someone, is to serve them. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said that friendship is a sheltering tree. Isn't that a wonderful description of friendship? The limbs are out and you just come be sheltered under this person. A person who will serve you. And honestly, I can't believe that we can't make good friends if we're simply willing to serve people. And if you look at someone's life and assess what their needs are and seek to fulfill those needs, it is amazing what kind of friendships you can develop. Someone uh, in politics years and years ago said that uh, they lost their daughter, in a, a teenage daughter, in a, in a car accident. This was in the 50s. And at their door was the, the speaker, Sam Rayburn. 
And he just came to the house and he said, can I get you a cup of coffee? And the person who was reporting this said, Mr. Rayburn, don't you eat with a eat with the president, have breakfast with him on this day every week? Yes, but I told him that my friend was in need. I mean, we, we pour so little into friendships. And the way you pour your time into friendships is you look at where their need is and you go for it. When someone is in need, they're having a funeral, go to visitation. Go to the funeral. Uh, when, when someone's in the hospital, send them a note. Maybe they don't want to see you. Uh, maybe they, they don't want to be bothered. But send them a note or make a phone call. It's amazing what can happen when you are simply serving someone. You can build friendships simply by serving. That's exactly what Jesus did, as a matter of fact. And then fourthly, in terms of loving people, there's this gift of encouragement. Pour encouragement into each other's lives. Isn't it true that with David and Jonathan, that you remember when D David was being pursued by Jonathan's father, Saul, the wicked king? Jonathan goes out to see David. And what did he do? He strengthened him in the Lord, which is to say he encouraged him. So Jonathan was strengthening David, who was his own father's rival. Why? They had a covenant friendship. And we simply encourage each other. Uh, I remember uh, Chuck Colson said that shortly after Nixon resigned, he was speaking at Columbia University. Uh, and, of course, you know, he's, uh, and I believe it was the law school, and Colson, of course, is a lawyer. And someone shouted out in the middle of his speech, Why did you support Richard Nixon? And Colson just stopped and said, he's my friend. The whole place gave him a standing ovation. Everybody understands friendship. Just giving a word of encouragement, guarding someone's back, doesn't mean you have to lie for them, doesn't mean that you defend them when they're wrong, but you defend them as a friend. Which brings us to the next point, being loyal. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Real friendship is tested in adversity, and I would suggest to you, real friendships are made in adversity. Like a bad tooth or a lame foot <laughs> is reliance on the unfaithful man in times of trouble. <laughs> How often have we been bad teeth and lame feet? Uh, and here you have this remarkable story of David and Jonathan. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel? Uh, that's on page um, 426 in your Bibles. Let's take a look at the contours of this friendship between David and Jonathan. See how it works. In chapter 18, you find several phrases that really get at the heart of this friendship. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And look at this next phrase. And he loved him as himself. He loved him as himself. Brothers, I don't know if you've really experienced that deep down of loving someone as yourself. It is one of the most exquisite experiences in life. And it is a gift of God to have someone in your life you love. Honestly, you love them as much as yourself. Maybe we never do perfectly, but you know what I'm talking about. Let's read on. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And look at verse 4. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. David, here is the insignia of royalty. I am the next in line for the dynasty. And I am giving you my garments. I'm giving you my weapons of war. I am telling you, I love you so much. I want you to be the next in line. That's what's so remarkable about, about, remarkable about this friendship. Jonathan's friendship with David was divesting himself of the dynasty. It was completely sacrificial. He just, but the reason was he was one in spirit with David. Jonathan's life was a righteous life. And he knew another righteous life when he saw it. And he knew that David was the Lord's anointed. And he recognized it. And he loved David. And he wanted to promote David. 
and certainly didn't want to stand in his way. Just a remarkable friendship. And this is what makes friends. Look at chapter 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Why? Because Saul knew that he was a rival for the throne. Saul knew that his son Jonathan would not be made king as long as David was alive. Saul saw it too. He saw the anointing on David. But he didn't want David to become king because he wanted his own son Jonathan to continue the dynasty. So let's kill David. But Jonathan, look at this, was very fond of David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Is that not remarkable? He even goes against his own blood father in order to be loyal to a friendship that was based on common purpose in life and a common love for God. That's what it was. So he's even willing to work against his own father. Now he was straight up with his father. Look at the next verses in verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done has, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Jonathan wasn't going behind his father's back. He was going to his father's face and confronting him. As a matter of fact, he was being a very good friend to Saul. He was being as good a friend to Saul as he was to David. He loved his father, and so he talked to him right straight up. Didn't cower before him. Didn't decide to placate his father and compromise his, compromise his moral principles nor his mission in life. And I find so many guys are... They still cower before their father. They can be fully grown men, and they still won't displease their father, even when their father is wrong. And they end up being a lousy friend, both to their father and to their non-family relations. That's not the way Jonathan worked, because he had a purpose in life. It was to serve the Lord. Look over at chapter 20. We won't look at all that, but that's where Jonathan pledges himself to David. He says, David, I will not betray you, and if my father is trying to take your life, I'll signal you clearly. And he did in chapter 20. And then uh, look over at chapter 23. And here you have that instance I was speaking of, chapter uh, 23, verse 15. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. What a powerful statement. David, you'll be number one. I'll be number two. You'll be king. I'll be your servant. Wow. That's friendship. And then when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, here you have David giving Jonathan's eulogy. Very sad moment in David's life. And look what he says about Jonathan in chapter 1. This is page 448. Chapter 1, verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Oh, he's lifting up Jonathan. Oh, he was a mighty warrior, Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of a woman. Wow. Or that of women. Now, I don't need to tell you that David enjoyed women. <laughs> He's saying, Jonathan, you're a whole lot better than Bathsheba. You're a whole lot better than Michael. You're a whole lot better than my wives. You're an unbelievable friend. And I believe that what we're seeing in this loyalty is that that's what friendships are made of. We have a common desire to serve the Lord and to promote His kingdom. And that means that we sublimate ourselves and our selfish interests to get behind the people that God is moving into leadership and we make sacrifices to love other people. It's an amazing thing what real loyalty is. I don't think you'll find a better example in the Old Testament than this example of Jonathan who gave up the dynasty. And here's, here's the deal. Jonathan 
loved the friend more than the friendship. You see it in his relationship with Saul. He loved his daddy more than he loved having the pleasure of his daddy. And most people only love the affirmation from daddy. They don't really love daddy. Jonathan loved David, even if it meant that David was going to be king. He loved the friend more than the friendship. Most people don't get beyond just loving having friends or loving friendships. To love a friend, this is a key. To love a friend, you must be willing to lose a friend. If you have to have the friendship, you cannot love the friend. In order to be a friend, you have to be willing to be lonely. You have to be willing to lose somebody, including your wife. Because your first commitment is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way you can be a faithful, loyal friend is by being absolutely faithful to Jesus Christ and loving other people the way He loved you, which means some people don't want that kind of friendship. And if you don't have the rigor and discipline in your life of love to let people go, you'll never have them. Once you start grasping at a friend, you can guarantee yourself something. You were enjoying that person selfishly. If you have to have your wife, you have to have her because of your selfishness. You don't have to have her because you want her cause to be lifted up. Same way with friends. In order to have a friend, you have to be willing to lose a friend. Jonathan was rigorous in his friendship. He was devoted to the kingdom of God. So be loyal. The third thing that Proverbs teach us is we've got to be honest. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. He who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. And you find this in Matthew 18 where the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us in the church that we're to be honest with each other. And when we get into spiritual trouble, we're to confront each other. And we're not in the business of flattering with each other. Flattery is saying something positive about some, someone that's not true. Encouragement is saying something positive about someone that is true. We're in the encouragement business, not the flattery business. And when we get in trouble, we confront each other. And if someone doesn't want that kind of love, then they don't belong in the church. Because the church is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He taught us in Matthew 18 how to do this. If someone sins against you, you go to Him. And if you don't get it reconciled, you take somebody else with you. If you don't get it reconciled, you take the whole church with you. You get this thing reconciled. You constantly have to repair friendships. You have to keep them in good repair. It's not going to just happen willy-nilly. It's not just going to be a glide through. You're going to have to work on friendships. And that means that when there's something between you, it's got to be confronted. You have to be honest. Obviously, you have to be tactful. You have to be loving and careful. You have to be prayerful about it. And you really shouldn't go to the person until you know it's hurting you as much as it hurts them. There has to be a grief and a sorrow and a sympathy in your heart. But nonetheless, we've got to be candid with each other. That's what real friendships are made of. Fourthly, there's got to be holiness. And we saw this in Jonathan's life, didn't we? But notice what Solomon says. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. If a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. If you listen to manipulation, if you're able to be manipulated, you'll have manipulators around you. If you like to be flattered, you'll have flatterers around you. If you're willing to accept lies, you'll have liars around you. If you're willing to be convinced that your finances are a certain way when they're really not, and you'll take false accounting from someone, you'll have false accountants around you. That's what the Proverbs is saying. You'll, you'll eventually draw around you the people that you allow speak to you and to get to your heart. And you find this, of course, in Daniel. There was this common commitment among those four young men to walk with the Lord, and they stood against Nebuchadnezzar and all the other uh, evils of their own day in Babylon. And we find in Hebrews 10 that there's to be a common life where we, we spur one another on to love and good deeds. You'll find in James chapter 5 that James says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So in our friendships, we're in commu a community of holiness to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So our friendships are based on a common spiritual life, our deepest friendships I'm talking about. Once again, we make acquaintances and we're friendly with everybody. But these soulmates 
are based on a common spiritual life. Now, fifthly, we must be gracious because I don't know uh, about you, but if you're going to be my friend, it's going to involve a whole lot of forgiveness. I can't be a friend with someone who's not gracious because I'm, I'm such a big sinner. I really am. And uh, uh, I, I preach grace around here for purposes of self-defense. <laughs> because if I don't live in a gracious environment, I'm not going to survive. I'm, I'm too bad. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. So make amends for sin. Make restitution. Let us be in an environment where we can, we can reconcile to one another. We can confess our sins. We can make restitution where we've made mistakes. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause or use your lips to deceive. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. Gentlemen, you, you can't build friendships on anything but grace. Um, Henry Ward Beecher, the famous preacher of the 19th century said every man should keep a fair sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends <laughs> and we're told of Jesus he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners he was a friend of the worst sinners who simply knew they needed forgiveness and where someone knows they need forgiveness we have to be willing to be friends Peter said Lord how many times should I forgive someone seven times no, Peter, wrong, 70 times 7, which is to say no end to it, Peter. And then remember he told that parable of the person who had been forgiven for this huge amount of money and then tried to wring the neck of someone who owed him some dollars. And Jesus said he'll be thrown back into prison. If you know you've been forgiven, then all your friendships are going to be gracious because you know you've been forgiven an enormous, infinite sum, and you have no right to hold out on other people. And real friendships, the deepest friendships, uh, are based upon the grace of God. Now, lastly, this. The key to all this is that we have to learn to trust our wisest friend of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Proverbs say, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So you're known by your friends. And let me just ask you a simple question. Would you number Jesus among your friends? I mean, really, do you take his advice? Do you really draw near to him? Do you delight in his glory? As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. There's friendship. Do you really want to enthrone him rather than your being the king? Do you want him to take the dynasty and to rule? Are you the Jonathan who's looking to David, the son of David, and you simply want to promote him and his kingdom? You want his dynasty to rule. You see that he's the anointed. And you do not want to oppose him. And you want to speak well of him everywhere. You want to lift him up. You delight in his glory. That's the way you're friends with Jesus Christ. Do you take his advice? Do you take his life-giving rebuke and thank him for it? Is there grace in the relationship where you're trusting him to forgive your sins? Here's what Jesus said to his own disciples on this matter. He said in chapter 15 of John, verse 12, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Jesus has downloaded to us the revelation of his own father. He's brought us into his family and made us sons of his father so that we're brothers of Jesus Christ. He's included us in family and lifted us up and made us part of the dynasty. Do you know this? If you do, and if you're cultivating that friendship with him, if you are the Jonathan who's promoting that David, I'm telling you what, you're going to make friends because you're going to learn how to do it. And that's the ultimate friendship is what Jesus has done for you to make you his friend and the way you're responding to him to lift up your friend who happens to be the king, the one who is ruling in the dynasty. So, gentlemen, the wise man is the one who makes good friends, who is a good friend, 
and who most of all is tight with the best friend of all, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the wisdom of the ages that we find in your word. And especially this morning, we thank you for the revelation of what it means to make good friends and to be a good friend and to receive the friend, Jesus, who is the summation of all wisdom, treasure of all knowledge, and who gives that to us freely, simply by receiving him into our lives. God, help us to be good friends, best friends with your son, Jesus Christ, and doing that, knowing that we become your sons ourselves. Father, uh, please bless these men as they go out the door, that they will be men who truly are friendly with their neighbor, who love their neighbors as, them, as themselves. Please give to each man here that soulmate or soulmates as a gift from on high. And Lord, enable each of the men here to give themselves away just as Jesus gave himself for us. This is our prayer. We make it in the name of Jesus Christ, our friend. Amen. God bless you all. I thought that